The Retrograde Approach, Episode 19, supported by the ANZ SVS, Asymptomatic Carotid Artery Disease. Welcome to the Retrograde Approach Podcast. My name's uh, Yogi Sansukumaran, and it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Sam Farah, the tibial hunter. How are you going, Sam? Yogi, you definitely need some new material, mate. I'm not going to even uh, respond to that anymore. <laughs> Sam, um, it's a pleasure to um, kick off uh, the content for 2022 uh, with an absolute doozy of a topic here, um, a topic that probably brings back nightmares for me as I reminisce on how I came up with uh, my algorithm to manage this difficult problem. But asymptomatic carotid artery disease, Sam, um, this is a, a big part of uh, clinical practice. Um, we see quite a lot of it through the outpatient services in the jobs that we work within, and it plays a uh, it, it, it is a difficult area to get your head around in terms of what evidence is out there and how do you approach the management of this? And in particular, how do you counsel your patients in regards to it? Um, it's, uh, Sam, I imagine you must find it just as challenging as I do, especially as young consultants trying to get your head around it. Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, really f- from the registrar who's about to sit the exam, this is probably one of our most requested topics. Um, so hopefully we do it some justice and, um, you know, put things in a way that's uh, easy to understand. And also for those who aren't uh, registrars or doctors, um, understand why we get, you know, a bit concerned about asymptomatic carotid disease and then hopefully come up with a, a, a rationale as to, you know, why we approach things the way we do. Yeah, it's markedly different to the symptomatic carotid artery group where it's very clear of the benefit for intervention. Um, However, the asymptomatic group of patients really sit within um, what I would term the the vascular surgery grey zone where um, as surgeons um, across the world would interpret the data in different ways, and that probably affects and impacts the way they practice them. My, my, my whole practice is gray zone, I have to say. <laughs> I think vascular, I mean, the, the beauty of vascular surgery is the fact that there are nuances to everything that we do um, and how we approach a problem. And that makes the specialty both interesting and innovative because of it. Um, I think you're constantly having to make compromises but when it comes to asymptomatic disease, I think it's beyond that. It's more about how well you counsel your patient and un- for them to understand the risk. It's, uh, it's the one procedure where I think um, the patient really pays it forward, if, um, if that's the right way of phrasing that. So maybe, um, Yogi, we could just start by, uh, I know you love definitions. Do you want to define what asymptomatic carotid disease is as part one? And then part two, maybe explain why, you know, 
it may be somewhat controversial in terms of um, operating on a asymptomatic patient for some people. I, I think the definition of asymptomatic disease is uh, as straightforward as it comes. So we're talking about atherosclerotic uh, disease within the carotid bulb and specifically extending or potentially extending into the internal carotid artery. Um, as we get older, um, the degree of stenosis potentially can uh, become more pronounced, and that's just a, a composite of uh, our various modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. And so um, the degree of stenosis over time um, is thought to potentially correlate with the lifetime risk of having a vent, um, in particular in this case, either a, a TIA or a stroke. Now, the reason that we worry about asymptomatic disease is that in about 10 to 15% of all first ever stroke patients, they will often experience an unheralded ischemic carotid territory stroke following thromboembolism from a previously untreated asymptomatic significant carotid disease. So that's a fair portion of stroke patients who are will have a stroke with this known disease process. And so the challenge and the controversy is twofold, Sam. One is identifying the patients who potentially are at risk, but also recognizing that in modern medical practice of atherosclerotic disease, significant advances have been made in terms of what is now termed as best medical therapy and the evidence base for which we practice asymptomatic carotid uh, management really evolves from an era where this was not the standard of care and also dates back to the 1980s through to the early 2000s. And there's been a significant, a seismic shift in the management of cardiovascular disease. And I guess, Sam, I, uh, the question I put to you then is when someone comes to you has been referred to you with a degree of asymptomatic carotid artery stenosis. And the first question the patient turns around to you and says, does that mean that I'm at risk of stroke? How do you put that or phrase the, your response to them? So um, generally I start by um, explaining one of two things. The first thing is that most of us would... Uh, quote um, the patient's stroke risk based on the ACAS study. Um, would would you be the same, Yogi? Yeah. Look, I think I think so. There are there are multiple multiple studies out there that look at the correlation between stenosis and stroke risk, and um, of which there are um, there is the ACSRS study. Um, which looked at stroke risk over a five-year time period, but also the vascular uh, study that also, Oxford vascular study, sorry, that looked also at the risk over five years. And the risk of stroke is thought to be correlated with increasing degrees of stenosis. And I think that is probably a fair enough conclusion. However, it's not necessarily one that's, it's hard to explain or counsel to the patient because at the present time of their visit, their degree of disease is asymptomatic. Right. And so, that poses, I think, the conundrum. Right. So, I mean, where I, where I generally start is by, 
I, I usually quote the um, the results from ACAS. So at five years for an asymptomatic greater than 60% stenosis, I tell the patient the risk is about, you know, 11 to 12%. And then um, with surgery, that uh, risk then reduces to about 6%. And overall, this is obviously a risk of 1% per year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. And it's because they're really, you know, for the general patient with a greater than 60% stenosis, it isn't a lot. Um, and the name of the meta-analysis escapes me, but there was a meta-analysis conducted on asymptomatic patients, and basically the number needed to treat is 33. So why some people are somewhat unenthusiastic about doing asymptomatic uh, carotid intervention is, one, the absolute risk reduction is low, and number two, which is something you've alluded to already, Yogi, is that the medical management has changed significantly, and the main thing that has changed is statins. So uh, particularly in the ACAS study, um, a lot of, I don't think any of those patients were really on statins or maybe very few, but certainly statins weren't uh, commonplace. And so really in the modern era of statins, um, NOAX, DOAX, etc., we don't really know what the asymptomatic stroke risk is. And so now we're left trying to um, risk stratify patients on very outdated data with much more modern uh, medications. Yeah, I think I think that those are very fair comments. And in a second, we'll touch on what I think are the seminal trials when it when it comes to the role of carotid endarterectomy um, for this patient group. I think the other thing to sort of mention is the prevalence of asymptomatic disease within the community. Um, overall, um, isn't particularly high, but um, ACE is severe, which is defined as greater than 70%. Asymptomatic stenosis probably ranges somewhere between 0 and 3%. Uh, there are variations of that on the basis of the location in which studies have been performed, and there are four big population cohort studies that have looked at that. But um, the, the, the difficulty is, um, as Sam mentioned, is the sort of evolving environment in which we live within now, especially with the advances in medications um, and their availability uh, that has placed challenges. So, Sam, I guess um, when it comes to the seminal studies for asymptomatic carotid disease, you've touched on one, but there are three in total that are probably... Uh, form the basis of practice to date. The first one, of course, is the Veteran Affairs Cooperative Study. Then there is the ACAS study. And the, the third study is the ACST1. Now, the primary issue with all of these um, is that these are studies that were conducted between the late 1980s into, into the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and it's fair to say, as you mentioned, that there have been advances in medical management of cardiovascular disease since then, which have probably resulted in their own reduction in stroke since, since that period of time. So if we sort of touch on the first trial there, Sam, what could you tell us about the Veteran Affairs Cooperative Study? So this was a study in 1983 or between 1983 and 1987. I think there are about 400 so patients uh, with asymptomatic greater than 50% stenosis and uh, they were randomized to either CEA plus medical management versus medical management alone and they found that uh, CEA significantly reduced 
the combined incidence of stroke or TIA compared to the medical group, and it was about 8% versus 20%. So slightly higher uh, benefit than um, ACAS. The next study is your favourite study, Sam, ACAS. I feel like you're looking at me like you want me to talk about it, Yogi. Tell us all. I'm, 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 ready, I'm ready to be taught. Well, you know, I think most of us would quote this as the kind of the seminal asymptomatic study. I've, you know, I've already touched on the results, but essentially greater than 60% stenosis, 1,600 patients, randomized to medical management or CEA plus medical management, USA and Canada. And at five years, the stroke risk for medical management was 11% and for surgery was about 6%. So again, as I said earlier, it's about 1% per year, which is, you know, a little humbling. However, the uh, study was stopped early after two and a half or 2.7 years, Yogi, because mm-hmm. they found, uh, despite those somewhat humbling results, that um, the results favoured uh, CEA over medical management um, alone. Gotcha. And then finally, Sam, the um, the last major seminal study looking at carotene directomy versus best therapy alone was the ACST-1 trial. Um, here are th- a group of 3,000 patients with asymptomatic greater than 60% carotene stenosis were randomised either to immediate or deferred carotene directomy. And again, uh, the significant finding here was an absolute risk reduction of about 5.4%. Uh, in the rate of any stroke in perioperative events when comparing the immediate versus the deferred group. Um, but also a significant difference in the risk of territory stroke and fatal or disabling strokes between both groups. Um, and interestingly also, the overall perioperative stroke and death rate was 3.1% in that study. Now, the um, the long-term effectiveness of carotene directomy was also sort of then confirmed in the long-term results of ACST-1 uh, with a, a 10-year risk of any stroke in perioperative event being 13.4% in the carotene directomy group and 17.9% of the medical arm. So the, 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 the studies in, in grouping and particularly ACAS and ACST-1 were fundamental because they really did demonstrate that the absolute risk reduction in the asymptomatic group who underwent carotene directomy was only about 5% uh, over five years. So it's a 1% per year reduction of risk, which is, as you said earlier, modest. And that is very, that, that's actually quite a challenging conversation to have with a patient in terms of uh, they are paying forward, they're, they're paying forward to reduce their long-term risk of stroke. Um, yeah. There are some fundamental differences between the ACAS and AST1 study. And whilst they did report overall stroke risk reduction favoring um, CEA, uh, they did have different endpoints with ipsilateral stroke being the ACAS N study and any territory stroke in the ACST study. So fundamentally, they were slightly different. However, the conclusion that we normally take out of these papers is the absolute risk reduction, which we normally quote. So, uh, I mean, eventually we need to decide who's going to actually benefit, right, Yogi? And so I think the interesting thing about a lot of these studies is that some of the actual subgroup analyses do give us some idea as to 
when you get a patient with asymptomatic disease who may actually benefit. And so the first thing to consider is the patient's age. So um, in all these studies, they basically sort of suggested that the younger the patient is, the more benefit. And, you know, that makes sense if there's a 1% risk per year of, or an absolute risk reduction of 1% per year, the longer the patient lives, the more benefit they accrue. Um, so if the patient is, uh, you know, in their 80s and their life expectancy may be short, then there may be less time. And so typically what you would look at is when you've got that patient in front of you is their expected life expectancy, Sam. And, you know, when we talk about this absolute risk reduction, we're talking about a five-year time period. So at least a, a life expectancy of five years. Now, some people would argue with the ACT1 10-year follow-up and the benefit over 10 years, you could make an argument that you've got to demonstrate a longer life expectancy than five years. However, I think as a good starting point, if your patient's life expectancy is less than that and they've got asymptomatic disease, you've really got to think hard whether they're actually getting a benefit out of surgery. And, and uh, what do they find with the old, older patients, Yogi, particularly those uh, getting close to 80 or over 75? Well, over 75, the benefit of surgery versus best medical management wasn't actually that different. Um, and so the ACST trial came out essentially demonstrating that they thought there was no evidence to support coronary for asymptomatic patients over the age of 75. Yep. So, I mean, generally in your practice, do you offer asymptomatic treatment for um, people in their 80s? Uh, you know, I, in short, no. I think you've got to really think long and hard when you approach these patients and counsel them. And, um, and I, as, I, as I phrased it to you before, I think a lot of these patients are paying it forward for a stroke reduction into the future. Now, if they've got multiple comorbidities and their life expectancy is not going to be extensive, I think you could make the argument that they're probably not best served by an operation that comes at a risk of stroke and a perioperative risk of mortality with the, with the procedure, though being very small and much controlled, um, it's, it's definitely one that typically would sway me away from offering intervention unless um, they're a uh, octogenarian that's still playing tennis full time and um, running to work every day. Uh, I don't think, uh, unfortunately, many of our patients are playing tennis uh, every day, but, you know, sure, if they are, I'd, I'd, I'd consider it. But I think, yeah, as, it, as we've said, the important thing to consider there is in the older patients, there's certainly less benefit and potentially even no benefit. What do, what do you think about gender, Sam? I know um, this is this is an area of interest, but um, what, where do you see the evidence lying with gender with asymptomatic disease? Yeah, again, interesting. Um, I guess two things. One, um, in uh, in the short term, there doesn't appear to be any benefit for women. Um, and you may know the answer to this, Yogi, but I always considered that um, with the ACAS study, if they demonstrated that women had no benefit for asymptomatic intervention, did that mean that men had twice as much benefit? But maybe that's a question we should put on notice and have a look at last time. And uh, but what I mean by that is if there were, you know, equal amounts of men and women in the study and the absolute risk reduction was 1%, once you take out the females from that study, does therefore the benefit for men potentially increase? I don't know. But uh, that was always something I considered. And then in a CST1 at 10 years, there was potentially now some benefit demonst demonstrated for women in the long term.
Yeah, so I think what the conclusion out of AST1 was maybe the benefit just takes longer to accrue. Um, and so are we doing women a disservice by not offering that um, initially? Though, I, I mean, I have to say I, I take each patient individually when that conversation occurs in the outpatient setting um, and you've just got to present the information and see how people approach it and i think you know it depends on whether your cup is half full sam or half empty and what your philosophy to life is when it comes to these sort of uh this discussion i think finally of course though sam we've mentioned it a few times here uh modern medical therapy has evolved and the, these randomized control studies were definitely performed in a year where um a fair amount of patients were not on statins and a greater proportion of patients smoked compared to where we sit today. And that plays, a, it makes it very difficult to then interpret the information you got in front of us. And potentially the effect of carotid endarectomy is not as great, especially for those with already on lipid lowering therapy uh, versus those who weren't. And so uh, I think that also poses another challenge. And my favorite word in medicine, plea, pleiotrophic, the pleiotrophic effects of statins, which seem to do the magical things that we like when we look after atherosclerotic patients, Sam. Yogi, I'm going to ask you a question. I, I want to, this is my opinion, but what do you think is, and this is uh, a prelude before we move on because uh, there's a lot of quality in your crib notes tonight, Yogi. What do you think is, in determining whether a patient will have carotid intervention for asymptomatic disease, what do you think is the most important factor? Pandora's box, Sam. Like that, there are. I think you can't pick the Pandora's box. You got to pick pick one factor. Yeah, uh, you know, if if I think so, there's two answers to this, Sam. There's the future. Future me would say a better understanding of plaque morphology and characteristics is probably where we're going to head. But here and now where we sit, I think evidence of silent events um, as demonstrated on cerebral imaging, um, plus also the surgical risk of the patient and their understanding of um, the problem that presents following counselling is probably, I think, the relevant factors. But I'd, I'd hear your point, Sam. Uh, I think the most important factor is what is your procedural stroke risk? Yeah, I mean, uh, it'd be fair to so this is a great point. So the ACAS and AST, uh, ACST trials were pivotal because they helped develop what we now consider our international practice guidelines. And so uh, we make the recommendations that come out of that is that for asymptomatic patients and um, this, you know, it's advised that the 30 day death and stroke rate should be less than 3%. Now, uh, I, I think if your death and stroke rate is much higher than that, you've really got to consider whether your practice, whether there's something in your practice that you're doing incorrectly or whether there are patient related factors that have contributed to that. And you would hope that people will play a part. But I think, I don't think that one factor alone contributes to it, Sam. I think, um, I think you've got to make you've got to make some concessions that there are potentially other factors that play a role. No, but I mean, I guess my the point I'm making is if your stroke risk, if if you you have a stroke rate of four percent or five percent or six percent, actually, you know, putting the patient on the table for a carotid endarterectomy is actually more risky than the uh, problem themselves uh, itself. 
And that's why, yeah. obviously, if you look at all these uh, international guidelines, uh, I, I, I think even in the ESVS guidelines, it says provided that your procedural stroke risk is less than 3%. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question, Sam. Um, so the American Heart Association, the American Heart Association continually and repeatedly has advised physicians that highly selected asymptomatic patients should undergo coronary directomy. So when so you've got your patient in front of you, how is are it, you discerning? Do they, do they say carotid endarterectomy or carotid intervention? Carotid endarterectomy. Okay. So who, who are you offering this to? Because it goes back to my point that I made earlier, but I'll, I'll, I'll hear you out. I'll hear you out. What, what are you going to put to the table? Well, the first, the first comment I uh, was going to make was a somewhat cynical one, that I always had the impression that the AHA was somewhat pro-intervention. Uh-huh. That's why I, I, I suspected that it was going to say intervention because... As you know, there are some enthusiasts for carotid stenting in the um, cardiology world and in the vascular world as well. But um, so to answer your question about who I would consider for asymptomatic intervention, more or less, it's the younger patient, probably male, with generally reasonable life expectancy. And by reasonable, I mean at least five years and with a good quality of life. And hopefully a low surgical risk. And a low surgical risk, yeah. And then would it be fair to say, Sam, that the future of carotid interventions will evolve as our imaging technology continues to improve? I, th- I think the holy grail in all this is trying to identify the plaque, which is actually going to cause a stroke. Because obviously, the although we're saying that the risk is always low, the proponents would would always, uh, their rebuttal was, but every symptomatic lesion was asymptomatic at one stage, which is yeah. true. Yeah. But I it, think, uh, yeah. it's trying to identify actually which one is actually going to cause a stroke or cause a TIA. So devil's advocate again here, Sam. So what sort of imaging um, findings in the future may uh, help shape that decision-making for you if it became more mainstream because at the moment a lot of the a lot of the imaging findings that potentially correlate to a risk of stroke are still not mainstream look i worry about the ones that look very non-calcified very homogenous obviously and you know we should talk about this in a moment but degree of stenosis is you know associated with increasing stroke risk so Mm -hmm. obviously the more the so coming back to your first question, what modality do I look at? Um, so I would generally perform a CTA if the stenosis was high grade on ultrasound and if I thought that I would consider the patient for asymptomatic intervention and then look at plaque morphology. Now, obviously, uh, when it came to the exam, we someone had a, a more refined approach uh, that would uh, discuss you know, the clinical equipoise associated with this minefield. But in my daily practice, First thing is a duplex, and then I move on to a CTA if I think that this patient may be potentially a candidate. I don't think I don't think many people would argue with that as the reasonable approach to imaging preoperatively. Though you know, a lot of people around the traps may also just proceed on a on a carotid ultrasound alone. That's true. Um, I think as a surgeon, I've decided that um, for carotid intervention, 
I would uh, in every case have a CTA. Mm-hmm. The reasons for that are, one, uh, what is the distal internal carotid artery doing? As we've seen, sometimes it's straight, sometimes it's coiled, sometimes it's kinked. If you're going to be putting a shunt in, and I'm a routine shunter, um, then you know you want to actually know that you're advancing it into a straight artery. Is there distal disease that's going to impact a patient's outcome? Is there inflow disease? What's the level of the bifurcation? Um, and I think with time, I've learned what to expect based on the CT, and I think that's helped me produce better outcomes. I, I think all of that is fair. I think the, the the I guess the additional point I would make to what you you said, Sam, is that um, so I think the other imaging factors that help us select patients who would benefit from asymptomatic surgery would be those with silent infarcts on CT or MR. If there's been progression of stenosis or large plaque area or the sort of holy grail of the um, juxtaluminal black area on, uh, on plaque analysis, again, this is not common practice. So it's difficult to sort of uh, use that in day-to-day practice. Uh, we talked about plaque morphology and particularly echolucency, which, uh, as you mentioned, Sam, not purely just calcified, but um, a bit of adherent thrombus potentially or plaque rupture. Uh, intraplaque hemorrhage on MR uh, or impaired cerebral vascular reserve. And then, of course, um, evidence of embolization on transcranial Doppler monitoring. I guess overall, the multiple factors that make patients particularly high risk um, for a stroke in the asymptomatic group. Now, now a, a lot, some of these things are already in practice, but um, I guess the more in, intricate plaque morphology interpretation is where I think the future of this will will trend will trend towards. It's just that we're not quite there yet. No, and I, I think the other thing that we've got to consider in the future is um, once uh, some of the newer studies come out, such as uh, Crest Crest Two, um, are we going to see actually that the risk is um, more or less than what we currently think it is? Presumably less. Yeah. Oh, look, I think uh, it's an evolving field, and I think more up to date evidence compared to what we have so far will only help in terms of guiding that I'd, I would hope um, so I guess Sam uh, I think that that sort of summarizes the evidence for coronary especially in the uh, asymptomatic group but um, a, a fair number of people maybe may make the point what about carotid stenting in the asymptomatic group um, where do we sit on that Yogi you've opened a can of worms it's a difficult topic. It's a very difficult topic. And, um, you know, I, I think it's funny because I think we're in a very, we're in a transition phase where um, the hi- historic operation of the transfemoral carotid artery stent is becoming more and more historic. And um, uh, the, uh, the evidence base for it comes from studies that have been performed in those who are average risk for carotid Um and, and there are five in total that have been done over a period of time. Um, what is, what's your overall thought in regards to it, Sam? Do you see it as an equivalent, equivalent to a carotidectomy? Are there some considerations that we need to take into account? And I, I, I did say historic, and I say that for a particular reason, Sam. Where, what's next? What's the next variant of carotid stenting? So I would uh, consider three three points. The first is, historically, we considered that 
the periprocedural stroke risk from carotid stenting was twice as high than carotid endarterectomy. So three versus six percent, or two versus four percent. I think that I think that's a I think that's a very fair comment. Though some people would argue that in in their hands, and I say in their hands, uh, the that risk is smaller. So because of the, because of that in Australasia, the enthusiasm for carotid stenting has been somewhat lackluster, and I would probably even go as far to say asymptomatic carotid stenting has been a controversial treatment. Uh, yeah, look, I, and and I think in in my years of training, um, I don't think I've worked with anyone that would consider that as part of their routine practice. Yep. Point number two is that kind of something you've alluded to already that people say, quote unquote, in my hands. And I think we have seen as time has progressed that there are some people doing carotid stenting who get good results. And I think that's due to a couple of factors. Number one, they do it a lot. They understand the embolic risk and they understand how to achieve better results. And some of that may be selection bias, but... There seem to be some people around who get pretty decent results for asymptomatic treatment. And then number two, I think the devices have improved as well as the embolic protection and particularly some of these stents that have uh, very tightly woven um, uh, struts and the the space between the um, interstices becomes smaller and smaller. Certainly, I think the embolic risk has, has dropped. And then point number to, sorry, to continue would be that um, ACST2, which has come out recently, we discussed last time, has suggested actually that for asymptomatic treatment, um, the stroke risk is now the same. Uh, and that study doesn't really say whether or not you should have asymptomatic treatment. It's just saying probably now in the modern era, um, for asymptomatic patients, the risk is about the same. Now, uh, point number three which I think you're alluding to, Yogi, is TCAR. Was TCAR what you're thinking of? Yep. yep. So TCAR, uh, transcarotid artery uh, revascularization, basically flow reversal within the carotid um, uh, uh, catheter and uh, device into the common carotid and returning flow into the femoral vein, reversing flow in the carotid artery. Long story short, new technique, very low stroke rate, almost too good to be true. Um, not available in Australia yet, or not performed in Australia yet, um, but looks to be a fairly promising intervention um, for symptomatic and asymptomatic. I think what I'm really not clear on yet, Yogi, is just exactly how well the symptomatics do, especially within the first 14 days. But certainly, yeah, in some of those uh, rotes of studies, the stroke rates are pretty low. Oh, yeah, and the... Also, the surprising thing out of transcarotid stenting was just that uh, the stroke rate was uh, was not um, did not or was not proportional to the level of experience. So almost equivalent across the board, whether you're a novice or an expert, um, and that can only be reflected by the um, advancement in technology. May as well just get the medical student to do it, Yogi. Uh, look, you know we're not quite there yet, but. Um, the day that that occurs, you and I don't have a job anymore. Um, and I, I, just to take you back quickly with um, carotid artery stenting for asymptomatic disease, really the meta-analysis of the four major um, randomized controlled trials had a 30-day 
a death and stroke rate of 1.6% after chorodendirectomy and 27 after carotid stenting. Um, and so oh, I guess overall, um, certain interventionists may say there's some equivalence in the data in terms of outcomes. Um, however, I think it's, I think I take your point, Sam, that the periprocedural risk of stroke is higher with carotid stenting as, as it stands at the moment. Yeah, and just for sort of exam people, Yogi, uh, those studies for stenting versus CEA for asymptomatic disease, Lexington, Mannheim, space two, ACT1, press one. Yes. Yep. Yep. I like it. Yeah. And the the last study also to mention is the Sapphire study, um, which were patients who are um, randomized to carotidinectomy or carotid stenting who were deemed high risk for carotidinectomy, which makes them slightly different to the other population group. Again, the majority of patients were asymptomatic, but the 30-day risk of um, death or stroke was 5.8% after carotid artery stenting and 6.1% after carotidinectomy. Um, so it's 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 a it's a tough balancing act when you're comparing um, apples and apples and some of this stuff uh, in terms of trying to make sense of it. Um, and I guess this is a good point to just sort of then stop and think about what are the current guidelines um, or clinical practice guidelines in regards to asymptomatic disease, Sam. So the um, Society of Vascular Surgery guidelines, which were released in 2021. Um, so it, this, the American Society of Vascular Surgery recommends that for low surgical risk patients with asymptomatic carotid bifurcation, atherosclerosis, and the stenosis are greater than 70%, they would recommend carotidinectomy with best medical therapy instead of maximal medical therapy alone for long-term prevention, stroke, and death. Um, the European guidelines, which uh, date back to 2017, and I believe, as you know, Sam, there's probably going to be updated guidelines coming out either this year. Um, that yep. would suggest they would recommend in the average surgical risk patients with an asymptomatic 60 to 99% stenosis, chorodendirectomy should be considered in the presence of one or more imaging characteristics that suggest an increased risk of ipsilateral stroke with a less than 3% perioperative risk of stroke or death and a life expectancy of greater uh, than five years. Um, so that is, that's probably the sort of overall summary of the guidelines in terms of where we stand. I think the other comment I would make is when it comes to stenting in this population group, I think um, given that it's not necessarily routine practice in the Australasian region, um, patients who are potentially thought to be at high risk for surgery, open surgery, should probably be run through a multidisciplinary team discussion uh, so that a consensus opinion can be made in terms of degree of stenosis, imaging characteristics that may place them at a higher risk of ipsilateral stroke, but also ensuring that uh, an institution's periprocedural risks are appropriate as well as the life expectancy of a patient. Does that seem fair to you, Sam? Uh, it does, but uh, prepare prepare now uh, to be challenged because you know I like uh, uh, putting you in awkward positions, Yogi. So, seventy year old, sixty percent carotid stenosis. Well, uh, past history, ex smoker, hypertension. You gonna do it or not? No. Okay. Now, same patient. Well, 
70% stenosis. Can I just rephrase um, my no? Um, so I, I guess the reason I want to sort of clarify this is if they're truly asymptomatic or previously had potential events, but also I, on ultrasound and on ultrasound initially, I'd look at their plaque morphology and determine whether I thought there was an echolucency or whether there was evidence of echolucency. So this was not purely all just calcified alone. And that may trigger me to investigate further if that was the case. But by principle, Sam, um, my threshold for intervention uh, for asymptomatics is usually at the higher end of the degree of stenosis. So towards, so uh, 80, in the 80 to 99% um, stenotic range, um, irrespective of plaque morphology, I would offer them surgery as long as their life expectancy was at least five years and they were of low surgical risk. All right, um, so the real astute listener may have said, but hold on, all these studies are people with stenosis greater than 60%. Why do you actually care if the stenosis is more than 70 or 80 to 99? Sure. Where, where do we tend to get that from? And is that, you know, is that evidence tangible? Sure. I mean... Uh, I think the evolution of guidelines have seen the patient cohort that we treat also becoming much more selective. But the um, my argument with asymptomatic disease is the fact that patients need to pay forward to reduce their risk of stroke. And it's harder to justify an intervention in an asymptomatic patient where the degree of stroke at a lower degree of stenosis is just is, is not as significant. Um, so I make the argument that if you're subjecting them to a procedure that has um, a periprocedural risk of stroke and death, um, it really needs to be done at a point where you think you're going to get the greatest benefit from surgery. And I would argue that that would be at a high degree of stenosis compared to one that is lower. Um, and yeah, that but, would be the but, argument I make. But how do you know that, Yogi? Because all the studies are greater than 60%. Yeah, so uh, Sam, I guess the evidence base for that really comes out of the ACSRS study, where there is uh, they demonstrated a correlation with increasing degrees of stenosis and risk of events. And so, arguably, the patients who have higher degrees of stenosis have a higher event risk over a five-year time period. And so, the study quotes the sort of S-shaped relationship between severity and incidence of events. That to me forms the foundation of my thinking when it comes to this population group. It's harder for me to justify subjecting a patient to surgery at a lower degree of stenosis when their event rate is a lot lower. Is that what? Do you think that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is this is the sort of thing you used to see as a registrar that um, some consultants, uh, some surgeons wouldn't intervene on you know, greater than 60% stenosis, but we'll get a bit more excited if it was especially high grade or greater than 80%. Um, I think the evidence for all that, you know, isn't great. Like the AC uh, SRS study, is that, is that the right? Uh, yes. I think it's a really good study, as we were saying earlier, that, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it shows you that not every good study needs to be um, a double blind placebo controlled study, but, um, 
you know, this is basically sort of a population follow-up study that looked at patient stroke risk over time and did actually show that there was increased risk with the degree of stenosis. But still, it's not, you know, the evidence isn't amazing. Um, so, yes, it does. But, I mean, that kind of explains why we do see some surgeons get a bit more concerned about uh, when the stenosis is greater. But I think probably what, what this study is really saying or showing is that it's, it's coming back to what you were saying earlier, Yogi, about looking at a CT scan and thinking that the plaque is ugly. And I think what it's saying is if the plaque looks ugly, it's probably got a greater degree of stenosis. And if the degree of stenosis is greater, then the plaque looks ugly. And then you're probably going to do it. Yeah, and, and look, it's it's a, that's the other, the you know, the devil's advocate there, of course, is that CT tends to overcall and ultrasound may not always be the best representation of the degree of stenosis. So a lot of this, unfortunately, is challenged by the limitations of the imaging studies that we perform as well. Yep. So, Sam, I guess the last bit to sort of think about is um, an area that I'm sure is an, um, a challenge for all vascular surgeons. And, you know, uh, I shout out our cardiac colleagues when I think of this topic, um, given the challenge that they have day to day when they when they face this in their practice. But uh, current disease in a patient with coronary artery, artery disease and the need for coronary artery intervention, Sam, a challenge it, it is, and a challenge that as a registrar is often very difficult to encapsulate and understand. Um, the prevalence of stroke after a cabbage is about 1% to 2%, but the problem with that is there are multiple different causes of stroke after coronary artery bypass surgery. And a lack of real clear causal association between asymptomatic coronary disease um, probably does reflect the fact that routine prophylactic coronary revascularization doesn't reduce the prevalence of post-coronary uh, post artery bypass surgery stroke. And so this is where we are faced with this conundrum as to who do we offer intervention to. It's also true that the prevalence of carotid stenosis or greater than 50% in coronary artery bypass patients um, is about 9%. And uh, the prevalence of greater than 80% stenosis is about 7%. And so this is a population group that shares very similar modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that we have to contend with in the sort of modern uh, surgical practice set. Yeah, I mean... Um... This was uh, this is uh, this is one of the real sort of uh, challenges in vascular surgery when you get a referral for a patient having a cabbage with uh, carotid disease. I think overall the indications are becoming uh, less and less, and the evidence is actually not unreasonable in this area. I think as a whole, most people are fairly unenthusiastic about performing asymptomatic disease, and I think part of that is. We kind of recognize that no matter what you do, the stroke risk is high. And as you said, there's actually lots of reasons why um, uh, patients um, with uh, who go cabbage end up having a stroke anyway. Um, but we do consider uh, two groups. One, patients who've had a recent uh, stroke or TIA. So basically we're saying symptomatic patients. So patients who've had an event within the last six months I think this was in the uh, meta-analysis performed by um, Ross Naylor, um, who's obviously a, a uh, expert in this area and probably one of the real great thinkers in carotid disease. But uh, in his meta-analysis, we really saw that um, 
you know, patients could be considered for this if they had an event um, within the last six months. Now, asymptomatic disease, where do you sit on uh, asymptomatic disease? So the risk of perioperative stroke in uh, patients with unilateral asymptomatic disease is probably in the ballpark of less than 2%. So the argument there is with unilateral disease, there's no strong argument for carotid revascularization uh, prior to coronary artery bypass surgery. And often the advice that's provided to the cardiac surgeon is to maintain their pump pressures at a slightly elevated pressure through the procedure um, and to counsel their patient about their potential risk of stroke throughout. However, um, there's probably some evidence to suggest that prophylactic intervention may be uh, appropriate in those patients with bilateral asymptomatic high-grade stenosis or within high-grade stenosis and a contralateral occlusion, um, Sam. And um, that's where the challenge then becomes difficult in terms of how do you then proceed with intervention in a patient who also needs a coronary bypass? Is it done staged or is it done as a concurrent intervention? And is it then done as a percutaneous procedure versus an open procedure? Yeah, good. all good questions, Yogi. First of all... Um, I've seen them really done both ways, uh, staged and simultaneous. I think obviously um, both options aren't great, especially when the patient's got uh, symptomatic coronary disease and also symptomatic uh, carotid disease. It's really a recipe for disaster. Um, so I really think it comes down to your kind of local team, who, what your anaesthetists are like, whether they feel they can actually safely anaesthetize the patient who needs a cabbage for whatever reason. Or is actually the team sort of best set up to do a combined uh, CEA cabbage? And maybe we can talk about, you know, some of the technical aspects of that procedure. But I think it's, it's the sort of in terms of before or during, it needs to be sort of individualized to the patient and the team involved. But I think probably actually the safest is to do it uh, with the cabbage with some safety measures in place. Um, go on. Yeah, I guess if, um, so first of all, I guess in the context of unstable coronary artery disease, um, proceeding with either coronary artery stenting or open carotid endarectomy prior to urgent cardiac surgeries associated with high rates of stroke and death, the 30-day um, stroke and death rate in the care registry following coronary artery stenting was 15% and 22% after open surgery. So this is a highly highly morbid intervention at the end of the day when it comes down to it. I think the other um, consideration, Sam, when it comes to deciding between stenting and open surgery, of course, is the potential impact of antiplatelet therapy prior to open cardiac surgery and the consequences of that. And so that then plays a part, especially if, a, if surgery from a cardiac point of view needs to be done urgently, uh, it does play a role in terms of determining your approach. So, I think in the context of someone having unstable coronary artery disease needing urgent intervention, it's a, it's a difficult scenario. Um, but the, I think you're right in thinking that whether one intervention is done before the other or done at the same time really comes down to multiple factors and institutional factors that probably play a role. I, uh, to be honest with you, in my five years of training, I only in, uh, was involved in one encounter where uh, a carotid and cabbage was performed at the same time. That was in my very first year of training, with probably within the first six months of training at that as well. And I've never seen it since. 
Yeah, just to uh, backtrack a little bit, can you just elaborate on the um, uh, antiplatelet uh, thing you you mentioned? So you said patients have a carotid stent, uh, the antiplatelets need to be considered in terms of if they end up having a cabbage. What, what did you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, so... Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, most interventionists that do carotid stenting would do um, platelet function studies prior to intervention because of the high amount of um, capitogal non-responders in the community. But um, most interventionists would start patients on dual antiplatelets prior to carotid stenting to try and mitigate the potential risk of embolization intraoperatively um, in such that um, they're maintained on DAPT uh, at least for a period of six months, if not longer, um, really to mitigate the ongoing risk associated postoperatively as well. DAPT being dual antiplatelets. Yeah, so sorry, copetagrel and aspirin. Yeah, so um, the other thing I'd be slightly worried about as well with having a carotid stent is they probably are a bit more uh, thrombogenic and like mm. potentially have a, a potential to occlude while on on pump as well especially with the hemodynamic shifts that you can get yeah and um so you said you saw it once when you're at uh presumably prince charles yeah how was it done the early days so um uh, under a general anesthetic um the uh, so as the vascular team we perform the carotid endirectomy first um and then the neck was packed um, and temporarily closed. And that was really done because of the higher doses of heparin that would be required in the circuit um, for the coronary artery bypass procedure. Once the cardiac surgeons had finished their intervention, we returned to then close the neck um, and ensure hemostasis was achieved. What, what did you use for patch? Um, so in, I, I don't recall specifically, but... Um, uh, uh, you, you could make the argument that you could use vein to try and mitigate the risk of patch infection given that the neck is temporarily closed. However, um, uh, I, I think at the same time, though, if you're more comfortable with a prosthetic um, patch or there is limited amount of conduit for the coronary artery bypass, that may also be an alternative anyway. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, the idea is that you do the endarterectomy you do the patch, you pack the wound so it doesn't bleed when they get heparinized and big stitches just to try and really compress the area to reduce the bleeding risk. And sometimes people would consider using a vein to reduce the infection risk or even bovine pericardium. If, you, As you say, yoga, there isn't um, a lot of options available for conduit. Yeah. Now, look, it's... Uh... It's it's a tricky area and the, the two big studies that have been performed were almost... Um, especially when it came to determining uh, the timing of carotid intervention versus cabbage. Um, there are two big studies, the Illuminati et al. and Wiemertal, essentially both that found contra- contradictory sort of results. Um, so I think it really, I think the end conclusion out of all of this is you've just got to look and re- reflect on local practice when determining What's the best course of action going forward? Yogi, I think uh, your crib notes are the uh, best summary I've really seen of uh, this topic. So I think we better put them in the uh, show notes at the end of this. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. But 
Look, it's a difficult area to sort of um, uh, feel like you're comfortable in terms of getting that you're under control, but it's um, it takes a lot of time and refinement, and particularly for those of you who are pre-fellowship, um, read the guidelines, but also read the evidence base because that's how you're going to shape your, your answer to the question. Yogi, what an episode. Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. See you next time. Next time.